Last April, with lockdown still in full swing across Europe, 12 of Europe's biggest clubs attempted to form a breakaway competition that would put existing continental and domestic competitions into serious jeopardy. And the backlash from fans and governments was severe. Punishments were doled out and the plot ultimately failed. Or did it? Well, the three remaining holdouts, Real Madrid, Barcelona and Juventus, took their case to the European Court of Justice this week, arguing that UEFA has no right to block their path to launching a new competition. I'm delighted to say that I'm joined by Mike Lahoud and James Benj to discuss the ins and outs of the case and the potential consequences for the European game. Kegoleso begins right now. Welcome back, everybody. Today's Kegolasso episode is presented by Gillette Clear Gel Antiperspirant. And for those who don't like to sweat, the choice is clear. Gillette is your ticket to all-day freshness. Gillette, the best a man can get. Guys, delighted to be joined by you again. So let's uh, dive straight into this one. What was the Super League exactly? James, I'll bring you in first to discuss the Dirty Dozen. Yeah, well, as I remember it, the Super League was the perfect way to disrupt my vacation, which I'd been looking forward to for months and months and months. So, I mean, this had been something that had been bubbling away in the background of European football for, I mean, decades, but was sort of beginning to rear its head and would rear its head every time there were negotiations with UEFA uh, around new Champions League deal, especially involving mm. the European Clubs Association. And then, as you said, JJ, last last April, 12 clubs signed up, uh, four, six English, three from Italy, three from Spain, signed up uh, to join an inaugural European Super League. That would have taken place on weeknights. It would not have involved them leaving the um, their domestic competitions, but would effectively have seen them leave the Champions League, Europa League and, and UEFA club competitions. Um Within a matter of 48, I mean, obviously, this was immediately brought a furious reaction, not just from uh, the clubs that weren't involved, but from supporters, especially, I think it's fair to say, in England. And within 48 hours, this was collapsing. Uh, I remember the scenes very well outside Stamford Bridge, where supporters were demanding that Chelsea pull out. They were the first to go. Uh, by the end of that night, the dominoes had all fallen in England. And pretty soon, it was obvious that this, this couldn't stand up. We should say as well that. Some teams didn't join at the outset. JJ, you'll well remember that everyone was trying to charm PSG into joining this. Nasser Al-Khalifi stood firm, backed UEFA and hugely increased his power base. Equally, Bayern Munich and Borussia Dortmund, two teams that didn't come on board and will always wonder about what might have happened if this had been more united. But as we said, collapsed in the space of about 48 hours. But there's a few teams, a few teams that need the money that the Premier League gets, still trying to force this through. But yeah. Uh, a brief ignoble spell in, in European football history, the ramifications of which we're still dealing with. Collapsing ah. in 48 hours, that sounds a lot like both of your teams when it comes to title <laughs> hopes or potential trophy successes. Jeez, oh, <laughs> JJ, jeez, you, put, you get in the hot seat, you get in the host chair. I'll and tell you what, sudden, the, this, the, this the, seat the is hotter than ever out. today. <laughs> no, I, th- this, I remember when this story broke out, I was kind of in shock because I think as a United fan, as a fan of the Premier League and European football, the Champions League is all we've ever known. And to see the modern day Champions League with its own issues, with clubs that seem to be like the financial fair play, I think of, I thought that was something in itself that was being struggled to to be addressed by UEFA. Then this comes about. 
And when I think of this news, I think of the Super League, I think of TV money and also blocking out the competition, merit-based competition. At the end of the day, this is sport. This isn't just about money. This is sport, and it should be always about sport. And I think this is a way for the Real Madrids, for the, the big head honchos of the world, to just limit any chances of not qualifying for a Champions League or not winning a massive competition and also not getting their hands on the ultimate pie, which is the money. And rightfully so, the fans spoke up and it's power to the people. And I think for the time being, the people won out in protest. I mean, we'll talk in a minute about the reaction that we saw in England, Spain, Italy uh, and beyond. James alluded to it already, but... Going with a, a serious question for a moment, because obviously Arsenal and United were both potentially going to be involved in the Super League. Aston Villa sadly weren't, despite the <laughs> fact that we do have one European Cup to our name. But no, a, kind of a, a serious question, because there are some people who, you know, who, who want to be guaranteed that kind of competition year in, year out. I mean, what? Do you think there was ever a sense of relief within some parts of the fan base that, you know, this might sort of put an end to some of sort of like the embarrassment of not making the Champions League for, for two clubs that maybe are not as dominant as they were a couple of decades ago? Uh, certainly within within Arsenal fan base, and I think this is fair to say, uh, of, of teams like Tottenham uh, and even I would say United, uh, there was no appetite whatsoever for it. I mean, of course you can find especially on social media, you can find the odd supporter who will, who will kind of say anything. Um, but no, because, you know, as, as Mike was saying there earlier, it's about, it's about feeling like you've earned it, isn't it? And this is, it felt like cheating. You know, you're buying your way into something that, you know, in the cases of Arsenal and Manchester United, you can't achieve through what you're doing on the pitch. It, it felt very unreasonable. I know talking to to Arsenal and Tottenham fans, because they were, I think, the only two teams in there that hadn't, possibly Atletico Madrid as well, hadn't won the European Cup. And it felt like, one, you're giving up the chance of ever having done that, because, you know, when you leave the Super League, you're not part of the UEFA competitions anymore. But also that, you know, any any Super League win would feel pretty hollow. Um, and, by the way, if this had got started, and that, if I remember correctly, it was going to start next season, Um Please correct me if I'm wrong, but but whenever it would have started, look at those squads. Arsenal and Tottenham and Man United and Barcelona would have been right near the bottom of the table. Like, what's the appeal of getting thrashed every week in a competition that has no heritage and no history? So, no. I mean, and, and we saw that. We saw this with, um, you know, the supporters on the pitch at Old Trafford when the games were behind closed doors for that Liverpool game, forcing that to be postponed. We saw scenes at Arsenal where for a moment it looked like um, Daniel Ek, the owner of and founder of Spotify, might be able to convince the, the Cronkies to sell up. I mean, this was not something that, that there was any real any real appetite for at all. I, I think of the fact that, look who's the vocal mouthpiece of this movement. It's Fiorentina Perez, Juventus's ownership, and for the large part, it's leagues and teams that the competition is really drying up. In Serie A, we've seen a massive shift in that, where this past season, the best thing that could have happened to Serie A was AC Milan winning. And it was also it was almost poetic justice to see Juventus fall from grace to just making Champions League after winning the league year in and year out. Which it seemed like it was hand-in-hand hand with Juventus and the championship in Serie A. But I... 
I just, it just makes me wonder that how can you be in sport and not thrive in competition? How can you not welcome competition for the likes of a Real Madrid? I, I think for Fiorentino Perez, it, it just, I, I can see the horns. I said, I saw horns growing from your head, JJ, sitting in the host chair. I, I definitely see the horns growing for Fiorentino Perez, the devil incarnate in a lot of football circles with this. It's something I hope that, you know, never sees the light of day, but here we are again talking about it. But of course, it's, it's kind of fair to say, I mean, as you say, Mike, it, this was the architect of it. I remember one of the things that went down really badly with supporters across Europe was seeing this press release that had Florent, quotes from Florentino Perez, and I think it was one of the Glazers as well. It didn't have, there was nothing tailored for every club. So a Manchester United and Real Madrid owner were telling you uh, why this is so great. And then Perez was going on El Chiringuito. And um, yeah. this, this phenomenal, bizarre, baffling uh, PR disaster that actually still kind of didn't sway Madrid fans and, and Barcelona fans away from it. I think what we have to say is the reason that these two groups of supporters were, I wouldn't say backing it, but were less vehement in their opposition was that these clubs look at the the financial muscle of the Premier League and PSG. And they think, how on earth can we compete with this? We need to get money from somewhere. And we're seeing this with Barcelona right now. Look at what they're having to do. I mean, there is a way of seeing the entire European Super League project as a way of basically the Premier League bailing out, or the, the, the big six of the Premier League bailing out Real Madrid and Barcelona, who had, who, whose finances had just collapsed into, into chaos and... We're, already, we're still seeing that with Barcelona in particular. That's why you don't have the vehement opposition in, in Spain, because these two, they dominate the agenda so much. And, and it was in their interests, and it still is in their interest. That's why they're fighting for this. Part of me you know, wonders, what are you fighting for? What do you think will happen at the end that you'll be able to bully the Premier League teams back into this competition? But look, they need the money, and they see the Premier League racing off into the distance. They know how... It dominates conversations. It dominates earnings. Let's just look in the States at how much NBC are, are paying for these Premier League rights. And they, they think if we don't do something now to tie the big Premier League teams to us, that could be it. That could be it. We might never be able to compete with them. So that's maybe to an extent, and, and their fans know that, that's maybe to an extent where you don't have the same vehement opposition in Spain that you do in England. Yeah, and I think as well something uh, you know that you can sort of bear in mind about all of this is there was quite a few sort of delayed reactions as well because I know a lot is made about PSG and Bayern Munich's positions on it and you know sort of how well uh, you know PSG and their Qatari owners in particular came out on it but you know there was quite a radio silence from the teams not involved uh, at the very beginning once that uh, you know the the announcement first came out as well uh, you know and I think you know Going, going back to James's point where you've got about Perez going on Chiringuito, uh, you know, you also had that awful Liverpool climb down a couple of days later. I think Arsenal had one as well. Where it's basically we heard the noise from you, the fans. We decided to listen this time, which it felt very insincere. So much of it felt insincere. But something I wanted to, to, to get Mike's view on first, because obviously you were viewing it from afar, was sort of the build-up of that fan resistance, particularly in the mm. UK. I mean, we'll come to, to James's opinion 
about it in a minute because he was sort of involved in the thick of it when it was happening. But, you know, how did you view that, uh, you know, when the, the fans started to, to show that resistance uh, towards what was going on? There, I know you two are not going to like this, but I'm going to take you back in history. 1776 here in America, it was as if the 13 colonies were saying no to King George and the British Empire all over again from sitting here in the U.S. It was powerful to watch. It really shows the essence of this game. It's, it's, it's about the fans. The fans are what make this game professional. It's what pays the players' wages. And football won that day when the, the Super League collapsed. And it's the buildup of that resistance. It's the buildup of the fans holding ownership and a lot of multi-billionaires and gazillionaires accountable. Something that I've never seen in my lifetime in the way that it was done. And it was that resistance of saying, hey, not only are you increasing prices in stadium for things like merchandise, season tickets, uh, pies, etc. Now you're going to do this. The, the line has to draw somewhere. And the fans, it felt like it was an, a, a public outcry across the world, especially in the UK, where you talk about the Premier League and how there's such a focal point in it, rightfully so, because the competition. Now that focal point gives a platform for fan bases to publicly voice their displeasure and hold ownership accountable. Do you think when uh, clubs' financial departments are going through like uh, match day revenue, Pies has its own like uh, section? <laughs> it's like the most. It's like the most important source of food and catering at the uh, football oh. matches. I what mean, if you beat, it's probably holding up the GDP across uh, places like <laughs> Villa Park and other places. You got your Balti pies at Villa. The, the Balti <laughs> pies at Villa. Are, if there's a super league for pies, then that <laughs> Balti pie at Villa is absolutely getting into it. I think one thing we should also just say, because it's disingenuous to not talk about this, is that you know, yes, there was a you know there was a an uproar from supporters, but also that was in large part kind of spurred on by broadcasters yeah. and pundits who were very worried about what this new competition would mean for the value of their rights. So, you know, you had Gary Neville, Jamie Carragher talking wonderfully on Sky Sports in particular about this. But of course, we all know that Sky Sports were thinking, well, suddenly the Premier League might not be the biggest show in town. I mean, mm. I know JJ will agree with, with me on this. We, we were, what, six months into our new careers <laughs> with CBS uh, only to, you know, who's obviously rights holders in the States for the Champions League. And we then discovered that all of the biggest clubs in Europe don't want to play in the Champions League anymore. And of course, we were exactly the same. You go, good God, what does this mean for our, it mean for our jobs? I mean, they were, you know, it was, those 48 hours were as much about. And I remember someone, uh, someone from one of the Premier League clubs ringing me up, trying to explain why this was a great idea. And I just had to turn around and go, well, it's not a great, I don't think it's a great idea. I might be able to lose my job here. Um, and of course that, you know, that as much as it felt, I, I agree with Mike, there was a sort of sense of revolution in the air, but, you know, kind of like all revolutions, this isn't just uh, an uprising of the, of the working class, you know, as in France, as in America, this is kind of led by middle class people who want to make a bit more money. That's how all revolutions are. Sorry, that's my history degree coming. Out. <laughs> well, you know what? I'm uh, sort of on that point. It's interesting because it kind of feeds back to that point about PSG and that delay uh, between them, commu uh, you know, between 
the Super League being announced and them actually sort of stating their position on it. And obviously part of that debate is, is this born out of the fact that, you know, Qatar owned, uh, you know, being sports have, uh, you know, contracts on competitions like the Champions League in certain parts of the world. This is, you know, these are all of the sort of finer parts of the the, the detail that certain clubs w- would have to consider, uh, you know, before making a decision about whether they, they jump in or not. So let's try and take it back now to, you know, what's actually, you know, going on in court and, you know, the punishments that have that have already been uh, meted out. I mean, we know that UEFA are currently, uh, you know, mulling over potential disciplinary action uh, against the the breakaway group in particular, Real, Barca, and Juve, because they're essentially unapologetic uh, in their stance on the on on the Super League. But you know, do you want to take it back to a more basic uh, point than that, James, about why this is actually in court at this moment in time? Yeah, so I suppose the easiest way to, to understand why this has gone all the way to, to court is to maybe see the argument of the three clubs that are still pushing this, which is, as you said, Real Madrid, Barcelona and Juventus. Now, they contend that um, UEFA is is monopolistic, is one way of phrasing it. Maybe it's sort of running like a, a cartel. But either way, that UEFA cannot be allowed to be both the regulator of European football and control the competitions because therefore UEFA can can change its rules to say, you know, and this was obviously something that was discussed at the time, UEFA can change its rules to say, well, anyone that plays in the Super League cannot, you know, play for their national team, cannot play in the, you know, in World Cup qualifiers. And that was obviously, that was the big threat that UEFA and to an extent FIFA had hanging over it. Um, Real Madrid, Barcelona and Juventus, their lawyers are arguing, look, you know, they will never allow us to break away, they they have too much power, and that that either the regulatory or the regulatory power, or obviously what they believe the comp the power to organise competitions needs to be taken away from UEFA. UEFA obviously argue that that is not the case, and they have the backing not just of many of the other clubs, pretty much every other club other than those big three now, um, but they have the backing of governments, they have the backing of uh, you know the European Union, all these bodies. And, you know, if Real Madrid, Juventus and Barcelona are are successful in this, we're talking about something that in Europe, at least, could fundamentally alter the structures of of some sports. So um, this is a significant case, but one where it looks like the clubs are are fighting a mountain. There is, I know we, the three of us are very active on social media. When I saw this coming back up, when I saw it going to the highest court in European sport, I couldn't help but think of that Spider-Man meme when it's two Spider-Mans pointing at each other like that of saying, you're being, mon- mon- I can't talk, monopolistic, if even that's a word. It's a word here in Texas, so we're going to make it a word. But you're having a monopoly. No, you're having a monopoly. <laughs> They're accusing each other of practically the same thing, of that the Super League wants to monopolize football wants to monopolize all the money in football. The Super League is accusing UEFA of wanting to monopolize the football and monopolize the fact that you can't have any other rival events. And it's it's beyond, it's becoming chaotic. It's, it's becoming a finger-pointing thing. And I just hope it doesn't get nasty. To go back to what you said, Benj, about the threats, there's the World Cup coming up and then the World Cup in 2026 coming up. I think personally that that threat of not having some of your biggest players that play for Real Madrid 
that play for Juventus, that play for Barcelona, that play for some of the biggest clubs involved in this potential Super League breakaway. I don't think FIFA or UEFA even, I think FIFA wouldn't allow that. That would hurt the world tournaments as a whole. And I, I think it's a hollow threat. It's a threat to create more of shock and awe and get them back and really, I think, get a reaction out of players and get a reaction out of fans more than anything. I, I think the power really is going to rest in the legal system. It's going to rest in the European Court of Sport, who this is not over yet, and this takes time. And I think we're going to see this unfold in the next year or so. Well, guys, this is the perfect time now to take a break. So uh, we will be back shortly. The soccer calendar knows no break, so it's all systems go here on Kegolasso. Staying on top of the global game is an all-day gig. And then there's the added stress of being a helplessly loyal fan who obsesses over every minor detail of concerning my club. Aston Villa throwing on top of that the studio lights, public speaking, breaking news. It's a recipe for perspiration, but not for yours truly. Fortunately for me, sweat and bad odor are two things I've never had to worry about thanks to the long-lasting power of Gillette Clear Gel Antiperspirant. I can get on with my day, which mainly involves staying on top of the latest Villa news and telling myself that it's strictly for work purposes without breaking a sweat. Gillette Clear Gel Antiperspirant goes on with an anti-white mark formula and protects your nostrils from those nasty under-armpit smells while giving you 72-hour sweat protection. So if you want all-day freshness, the choice is Clear Gillette Clear Gel Antiperspirant is a tap in guys welcome back so let's uh, now try and break this down uh, and take a look at uefa's argument and then the club's arguments so mike let's start with you um and let's go let's flip this around we'll go with the club's argument first as opposed to to uefa's sort of looking at it through like a, a manchester united lens and the other clubs you know who wanted to be part of this to start with uh, you know, break it down. Sort of, why why would the Super League appeal uh, to these clubs? Uh, well, as a United fan, one of the things that I've been lamenting, and I was on, I was actually on the phone with a good buddy of mine who is my Tottenham Hotspur insider. He's a big Spurs fan, and we were talking about the fall of Manchester United over the last couple of seasons. And the big thing that Manchester United has done is go from a competitive club to a commercial club, and so from the business side of things. Manchester United, this would favor what they're doing because they're already knee deep in the commercialization of the club. That earning high profits is more important right now than actually getting quality players and, and getting trophies and competing on the field. And, you know, as Manchester United fans, we are still tied to the glory years. We still have that competitive fire. And I think there's a gulf in that. And there's a disconnect between the club hierarchy and the fan base and the desire for competition. So for a club like United, this would be appealing because this would jack up profits even more, not not being tied to policing of really any kind to be able to, to double or quadruple the profits that you're already getting in. And you're, you're sixth place in the Premier League and you're still one of the biggest earning clubs in terms of profits around the world. This would make profitability on steroids possibly for a club like United. Well, and also, I mean, of course, that's not the argument that they would tell you um, no. if you went to speak to them. And and I think the argument that the Super League existed on was that fans want to see the best teams and the best players playing against each other as often as possible. And UEFA's current system, you know, does not allow for that. 
this was why we were talking about what was effectively a closed league where the 14 member uh, the 14 founding members were guaranteed they wouldn't get relegated it, obviously it was never made kind of explicitly clear how these other six or however many spaces would be divvied up um but effectively you know the the argument of these four initially the 14 now the three is that they should be able to organize their own competitions if they want to they should be able to play against the biggest and best and give their supporters what they think they want remember that at the time Florentino Perez was talking about how kids would rather watch people play Fortnite than they would watch the Champions League debate that you know debate whether you believe that I don't buy that I think it's pretty clear from the actual Champions League and the football we've had since the Super League fell apart that uh, you know the there's pretty good quality stuff there. I don't think I think a lot of people were probably switching off Fortnite to watch Real Madrid keep doing what they were doing. So um, that kind of is the the argument that the clubs are taking into court. Like we should be allowed to have some say in the competitions we play and not just do what you wait for tell us. Well, there there's an avenue to do that. I think for these clubs. And it's called friendlies. It's called ICC, and and maybe you don't have to travel all around the world, but uh, you know to see. I'll say this: as a former player, I played in the NASL, and it's definitely not the way for Champions League. And at a certain point, there was a similar model of almost getting as many good players as you can and playing teams over and over again. There's only so many times you can play the same teams over and over again before it gets stale. I remember as a player, we're saying, you know what, so-and-so, he's a really good player, plays for his national team. Well, I have to play them for the fourth time this season. Ah, crap. The performances start going down because there's no freshness. There's no challenge of going up against a new team you haven't played, of, of really that legacy that's been there between uh, a team like a Napoli versus a uh, you know, team that they played in the past, that there's history there, there's fan-based connections. So I, I can tell you how that is as a player, and from a player standpoint, within these clubs, you uh, you might see performances start going down if this goes through. You know, Mike uh, threw in a really interesting word there, legacy, and I think some of the wording of around the the proposal of the Super League, uh, you know, was particularly off-putting and insulting to a lot of fans and journalists and people who just love the sport as well. Legacy, exactly. Legacy supporters was a dreadful way, uh, you know, for people to be to to be considered as as part of this venture. And you know, I'm I'm also struck by the irony of the fact that you know the the strong argument or the 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 argument that Real Madrid uh, and Florentino Perez would have considered strong to be in favor of the Super League. It's actually kind of undone by their improbable run to the most recent Champions League title, given that it's exactly what, you know, uh, you know, fans wanted to see from, uh, from from the competition. So let's move it around now to UEFA's argument, uh, you know, James, and I'll let you you take the floor on this one. Yeah, it's, just, it's a simple uh, as this from UEFA, their perspective is, you know, you need a governing body that is able to able to organise this, that it is, you know, that this is just how sport has to work. You can't change all of sport to make it a sort of buy-in system where, you know, you are guaranteed your place regardless of, of what you achieved the previous season, that the importance of the Champions League is that this is about the best performing teams from from Europe competing to find out who is the very best and that we wouldn't really get an answer to that 
you know, we would never have had an equitable, a fair system in Europe. I think it's fair to say we don't have a fair system now, but it was only going to get infinitely more unfair when the top tier of European football was locked to all but a few dozen or a few, few, a handful of clubs um, that may well have not have earned it on the pitch. Um, that's UEFA's argument that you that you must have sporting integrity. That effectively, that that if we look at this within the case, within the context of the court case, you know they are the defendant or they're the the, the defendants. They have to counter the argument I was laying out from the three clubs that they are a monopoly. Well, their argument would be sport is a natural monopoly. You know, it's like. Um, without wishing to, you know, end up in a political debate, but it's like maybe the the actual railways. There is no sense having two or three con- competing railway lines that get you from Paris to Marseille, from London to Birmingham. It makes sense for there to be one or two, or however many necessary tracks, and for them all to be organised by one body. The same with sport. You know, it's in whichever country you go, multiple leagues in the same country trying to establish the same champion it never works you know the nba and the aba the nfl and the afl all those things it is a natural monopoly and uefa needs to be able to have control over that and regulate that and clubs can't just swan off and do their own thing that is that's their argument it's an argument that they've had an awful lot of support for because you know this isn't just about the champions league and European football, the, the same would happen again and again. And I suppose it's interesting comparing this to America, where effectively what we, you have is every single one of these leagues is a super league. You know, there is no punishment. Thank God, there is no punishment for the New York Knicks for being as dreadful at basketball <laughs> as they have consistently been throughout yeah. my time following them. But that's, you know, that's kind of how it, it began. And... I don't think it would be possible to implement a system of relegation into the big four or big five, however many American sports leagues. But equally, you can't just you can't just pull the ladder up with you because you happen to to be the successful team in twenty twenty one that could that could get away with it. And I think the point that a lot of critics of, of some of the clubs, you know, maybe clubs frankly like Arsenal and Tottenham said is that, you know, they went for the Super League project now because if it had been 10 years down the line, goodness knows whether they'd have been in the top 12, top 15 biggest names in European football. And that's why they went for it. But yeah, I mean, that UEFA's argument is basically that these things need a regulator. They need to be a natural monopoly. And um, like I say, they're not they're not alone in backing that argument. Uh, I think oh, Mike Lohood, Pro Prowell yeah. has raised his head right to reply. Oh man, you, you said you said the word that shall not be named here in America when it comes to soccer. But I think it's I think it's interesting as we're talking about this. I, Real Madrid, the Champions League, how this is all coming back full circle. It was Santiago Bernabeu who helped create the Champions League to serve Real Madrid's purposes. And here we are, UEFA backing it. At the time, it was whoa, what's this Champions League stuff? And Real Madrid, they don't win the league after winning the Champions League. And then Bernabeu comes up with a different rule that says, ha the champion automatically qualifies, so we're back in it anyways. Doesn't matter if we won the league or not. And here we are decades later, generations later, 
and it's Real Madrid again at the forefront of trying to create something to serve itself. So just history lessons for our fans watching, just so you know, it's on Amazon, Real Madrid's documentary, you're gonna learn a lot of things. But to get back to the matter at hand, I think that football and sport need a governing body. I think this, this cannot become the wild, wild west. And I think UEFA in their right are using the keyword in this, that sports and especially football are about meritocracy. This is a meritocracy. And money is one thing and everything, but this is earned. To get to the Champions League has to be earned. To get to the highest mountaintops in football in Europe have to be earned. And that's something that the Super League, they're not using that language because they can't. And that, as you said, begs that integrity. There's a lack of integrity, I think, to what they're trying to concoct. And it's self-serving. And, you know, in the end, I just wonder if that meritocracy and that lack of meritocracy that the Super League has is what's going to cost them. All right. Well, we will start discussing the potential verdict in a minute. Quick CTA, get your Gillette Clear Gel antiperspirant at a store near you. And that leads us nicely into the Choices Clear presented by Gillette Clear Gel. So, guys, the question I'm going to put to you, and I need a clear answer, as clear as Gillette's Clear Gel. How should the Luxembourg court rule in this case? Mike, I'm going to start with you. Well, I, I was trying so hard, just a quick sidebar, I was trying so hard to to think of when, Benj, you mentioned what's happening in the U.S. So there's this is happening in sport. In the U.S., you have you see this Super League uh, forming in college football. And teams are leaving and creating their own monopolies and creating their own Super Leagues in the East Coast, West Coast, all around. So I wanted to address that. But in terms of this court case, in the end, I don't think the Super League is going to form. I think the fact that it, this is sandwiched between a World Cup on the horizon and also a massive World Cup that involves three countries. After that, I think the fact that meritocracy is what sport is based on, it's what makes sport in the end, and and really that the court of justice, the court of sport, has really had long history with UEFA. I think the status quo went out. Yeah, I mean, I would agree with Mike that I would expect the, the status quo to remain here. I think maybe if we kind of head back to those arguments once more, there is a convincing argument that the Super League is making, that those three clubs are making, which is that you can't have a regulator who also organises the competitions. And actually, it's fair to say that that's not without precedent in Europe. You know, I mean, the the obvious example of this is the FA is responsible for, you know, the rules and regulations of the the game in England, but it doesn't organise the the top division. It doesn't organise any of the, you know, of the divisions. They're organised first by the Premier League, and then by the English Football League. Equally, what the Super League has proposed is effectively replacing a monopoly uh, organisation at the top of European football with a cartel entirely of their own, 12 teams that would run the competition in the interests of themselves, not in the interests of the European game. Now, to what extent UEFA truly runs it in the, in the interests of the European game as a whole is always going to be a matter for debate, but it's the founding principle of UEFA. Um, it's fair to say that the founding principle of the Super League is not and was not that. And whatever their arguments, you know, it's not an it's not a it's not a it doesn't really hold much water. I guess is the easiest way to say this. So, you know, I would expect when this verdict comes later this year, that with all the backing UEFA is getting, 
they will they will emerge victorious from this case. I mean, we know that even if the Super League were to to win on a on a legal point, I don't particularly think that ends with you know the mass return of the of the nine clubs that that withdrew. I think it more becomes something of a sort of moral victory and allows Madrid and Barcelona to try and kind of get this off the ground again. But you know, the Super League is is not going to exist in the form it is for a very long time. The only other thing I would say is we're probably all heading towards a Super League and you go and look at the transfer business, the Super League will be the Premier League. This is the richest league in the world. It's the one that the broadcasters want. It's the one that the players are increasingly gravitating towards. And I think maybe, you know, Madrid, Barcelona and Juventus, their fear is going to come true and quite possibly within the next 20, 30 years, you know, the Premier League will have eclipsed Champions League as, as the biggest footballing competition, club footballing competition in the world. We'll see. That's certainly though what, what the fear is from every other league other than England. I, I just, just to add to that, I, I love I think what you said about the, sorry, just to add to that, I, I love what you said, Benj, about the, the Premier League and how dominant it's being, but it just, it's incredible how the Champions League has served both Real Madrid and Barcelona to, to put them into the elite stratosphere and now to walk away, potentially walk away from the thing that has gotten you to this point, it's, it doesn't make sense to me. And I think it's all about money. And in the end, I hope that the court will see through that. And money rules the world. Money is a dominant thing in sport. But hopefully in this case, money does not win out. I think as well, there's an argument, uh, you know, certainly something that's been building since, uh, you know, the, the Super League first reared its head already with uh, the European elite. James alluded to it, certainly sort of the the move that, that we can, well, we can see it's already happening and that we can expect it to continue uh, in the coming decades towards the Premier League. But also when you look at that very elite band of clubs already that can compete for sort of the biggest names, uh, you know, and basically stockpile some of the, the, the world's top talents so you know i think you know i'd definitely be surprised if there is um a ruling sort of before say another year's time uh, i don't think we'll hear much more on this before say you know the last couple of months of this year and then in terms of an actual ruling and something that could be binding it's it's certainly going to be sometime in 2023 maybe even later but you know i think we're we're all under no illusions that there will uh, you know be another iteration uh, of this at some point and another push uh, you know because as you both sort of hinted at you know there is a desperation on the side of some of these clubs particularly those most loyal to the idea that they're they're not going to give up on. So uh, that was The Choice is Clear, presented by Gillette Cleargel. Uh, and time for final thoughts, guys, before we uh, before we sign off. Uh, any any pleas to, to our listeners to not get behind the next push towards the Super League, whenever it might be? Mike, I'll let you go first. So uh, thank you. I've been waiting for this moment. Um, Got to give a big shout out to the team on the my back today, Austin FC. It's a club I work for doing broadcasting. They're killing it. They're top of Major League Soccer, and they're playing champagne football in MLS. Um, just it's been a revelation and really a miracle story to see them go from year one, one of the bottom teams in Major League Soccer, to year two, top of the league. Uh, Cinderella story overnight. And so shout out to them. Hopefully they can keep it going. I mean, it's slightly, slightly different. 
point I would make, uh, just in relation to the European Super League, if you think maybe that was kind of the thing that could have given us more excitement or everything, just go and take a look at what's happening at Barcelona. It has been one of the most magnificent, hilarious, and of course I do understand for Barcelona fans, quite dramatic stories of the last few years in football. You know, this giant laid low by its own incompetence. Um, and this world we're kind of living in now, the after effects of the Super League hitting Barcelona so hard, and yet they still can't break their own addiction to transfers they don't really need. I mean, right now we have a team that has just had to sell 49% of its uh, marketing and imaging organisation that's making you know, remortgaging itself for the future so that it can buy a, a winger from Leeds United who uh, I think scored about, or made, had about 12 goal involvements in the Premier League last season. So um, if nothing else, the fallout from the Super League has, has probably delivered more drama and more storylines than the Super League itself could ever have imagined. It's almost like a footballing equivalent of the, the big short. Anyway, that's that's all we've got time for today on Kigo Lesser. So thanks to Mike and James for joining me. Uh, and we'll be back very soon uh, for another episode.